From the band that brought you such critically acclaimed and listener-lauded records as Respect in You and Respect in Yule comes the brand new album Respect and You, recorded in front of a live studio audience at Greenwich House Music School. Head on over to respectsextet.bandcamp.com to download this and many other Respect titles, including the also brand new Respect Trios album, Respect the Trio, we says. The Jazz Session listeners can use the discount code TJS to get 10% off your total order. The music starts on Saturday so this is Jazz Session. I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 452 for April 21st, 2015. On today's show, saxophonist Ross Moshe. Membership in the Jazz Session is five bucks a month. It gets you MP3s and other cool stuff and goes directly toward keeping the site online. There are more than 450 episodes. That is a lot of data storage, and people are accessing them all the time. That's a lot of bandwidth. It's expensive. So if you'd like to help keep the Jazz Session online and freely available to everyone, please consider donating at $5 a month, which you can do at thejazzsession.com slash join. Also, very, very shortly, the Jazz Session will be launching a Patreon process. (laughs) That's not the word for that. Something, a Patreon thing, thingamabob, that uh, should make the whole process of donating even easier. So stay tuned for that. As you can tell, I've really got it figured out. Uh, If you listen to the show using iTunes, please review the Jazz Session and give it a rating. That just helps it pop up the iTunes rankings. If you are a fan of stand-up comedy, visit firstlaughs.com for my weekly podcast chronicling my stand-up career and sometimes featuring interviews with other stand-up comics. I write poetry and essays and another junk over at jasoncrane.org, and I do PR work for artists and musicians of all kinds at cranewrites.com. Here's some music from saxophonist Ross Moshe and then my conversation with him. guest is uh, saxophonist Ross Moshe, and man, it's, this seems like it's been a long time coming. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks back at you. It's much appreciated. I, I've been enjoying uh, your work. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks I, for involving me. My pleasure, man. I'll say the same right back to you. And, and actually, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to start maybe slightly to one side of of the music, although I think the music fits into this conversation too, which is to say that one thing I really enjoy about you is that you're very outspoken. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of times people, especially people who make their living in the arts, I think sometimes they try to take like a, a careful position when it comes to things that are happening in society. And to me, I'm always much happier when I see artists taking a strong stand about the things that they see around them. And you seem like someone who's very unafraid to do that. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that that's a fair statement. You know, I'm not afraid of much. But um you know, it's it's a sentiment that's that's um 
voiced by uh, most people, most working people, are um, have concerns about uh, the way things are going. It's just coming out of a struggle for basic needs, you know, uh, just uh, everyday existence. So it's not really top secret, even though it's outspoken. It's just um, I'm just part of a continuum of people of artists and uh, people who work and people who work and are artists, you know, and um, it goes deeper than uniformity itself as in uh, one perspective politically. But like you said, the outspokenness is important. I think as a jazz musician, it's important to be that way. And I think uh, I always grew up being inspired by uh, these great artists who created great music, but also had some assessments for what was happening around them, you know. Did your family play a part in that too? Were your were your parents or or other people in your family were they either politically active or even just you know kind of outspoken people, people who talked about what was happening at the dinner table or that kind of thing? Uh, pretty much, I think on both sides of the family there was uh, these concerns in different degrees. I know. Uh, my father especially had these concerns and uh, I learned a lot just from hearing him talk and uh, hearing him and his fellow musicians discuss things that was happening in the world. You know, um, it was pretty interesting assessments that were going on and they're, they're still valid today. You know, and uh, I think that was a, a family thing, especially with my uh, grandparents as well, but those people from a certain generation that uh, couldn't take this entrance, couldn't go in that entrance, couldn't do this, do that, you know, um, later generations kind of take that for granted, even if we might have some sort of political or cultural awareness, but it's one thing to actually live under a time period or live in the time period, I should say, where uh, it was pretty blatant, you know. And it's still blatant, but uh, blatant is part of the overall culture as far as an, an intentional separation of people. It's not good. <laughs> performing for people, do you ever invoke these uh, political and social ideas? Do you talk to the crowd about things that are happening? Do you, do you title songs uh, with titles that it, you know, inspire people to think about these issues? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I was very inspired by Archie Shepp and Max Roach, Jack McLean, Charles Mingus. In that regard, um, you know, the way they titled, especially Archie Shepp, the way he titled his compositions, you know, was really like, you know, knocking out the system through music, you know, and um, and the way it can be done through poetry too, literally poetry and music as well. But um, I think the dialectic is there in the creation of music, that it's uh, music for music and uh, music for a cause at the same time. I think that both perspectives are a natural impulse for people that create music, especially jazz. But I never believed really in um, decreasing 
the, the social sentiments involved in the music, I felt that that's very important, you know, because uh, it could only have a positive outcome the more people the more people are exposed to the truth of what's happening and the more artists uh, the more artists involved what they do in that kind of dynamic, you know, could have a positive effect. I once heard, uh, actually, I might have heard this on a recording, a, a, a live recording of the British singer-songwriter Billy Bragg, who has advocated for many yeah. progressive causes, and he said oh, yeah. in an intro to one of his tunes, I think, I think just off the cuff, he said, somebody once asked me, you know, do you really think that writing songs is going to change the world? And he said, I don't know if it's going to change the world, but that doesn't mean we stop writing songs about it. And <laughs> I always thought that was very important, that it's... You know, it's uh, who knows if it's going to change the world, but it's it's for darn sure it won't change the world if we stop talking about it at all. Well, music can help contribute to the thought processes of the thinking of people in a positive way. It can change the world in in that regard. I mean, the, the term, the phrase "change the world" might be seen as idealistic by some, but. Uh, I think that's a very uh, good way to look at things. I mean, you can, uh, uh, because, you know, music carries a strong message and you can really reach people that way. And uh, usually it's a process of triggering things that are inside people that are already there. And maybe they're apprehensive about being vocal about things, but the music can help that process. You know, so I, I would I would agree with Billy Bragg in that regard, absolutely. And uh, I like I like his music too. Yeah, I think that's a really great point that you just made about many people already feeling this way, but not feeling like they're in a safe space or part of a community where they can talk, and music being one way to provide that safe space. Yeah, that's true. I think. Um, What's behind that, of course, is the fear, uh, which is not necessary. The fear of being vocal about certain things. But um, the more people do do that, the more the artists do that, it can enact the kind of change that we're seeking, you know, instead of just feeling like we uh, have to constantly be complacent just for diplomatic reasons, you know. Are you seeing are you seeing anything you could call a trend in the in the musicians around you or the scene that you're part of either either toward or away from this kind of social engagement among musicians? A trend of not being involved, you mean? Or or in the other direction, do you see it is it either getting better or worse? Do you see more people getting involved? Do you see people backing away? Do you see no change at all? What does it look like one from thing, your perspective? One thing that I've noticed is that it's always run the gamut. Um, I would say that the musicians that have the concerns are, are in greater numbers, just based on uh, the personal concerns and the personal conversations that uh, they have, that we have, that I have had and learned from the older musicians that I came up listening to and listening to them talk. That's basically what educated me that there was a connection. And uh, maybe that's uh, at the root of this fearlessness of being about being vocal that uh, you mentioned a few seconds ago was uh, just um, realizing that the people who've really been playing this music, especially the creative music, for a while now uh, are not apprehensive about these sentiments. So it's, it can be it's very inspirational in that regard. Will you talk about about growing up? Tell us something about your your father and and what kind of uh, the kind of musical household that you grew up in. Myself, I was born on the twenty second of March, nineteen sixty eight, in Brooklyn, in the East New York section of Brooklyn, and I grew up there. Uh, my father grew up was born and raised in East New York, Brooklyn as well. His father came here from Jamaica in 1933 or 1934 
from Jamaica and began playing with a lot of the big bands of the time, most prominently Chick Webb, Don Redmond, Henry Woody, Lucky Millinder, uh, and then did some things with Ella Fitzgerald because uh, I think um, she had a very strong role in the band. I think she was uh, Chick Webb's... um, main comrade and helper in the band and uh my grandfather did tell me some stories about that situation even though later on probably in the late 60s by the time i was born he got more involved with religious music in the church writing music for the church and uh but he would you know he would still talk to me about the music because i always loved jazz and uh he played tennis saxophone and alto, so, you know, he would tell me stories about, uh, mostly about traveling on the road and um, that whole dynamic of really being away from home. It's not like that now so much, but uh, those guys from that time really traveled. And, of course, uh, a lot of the things that they saw as far as racism and other stuff was really intense stuff. So uh, that that was another contributing factor to to my learning process. And his name was Theodore Burnett first. But uh, professionally, he was known as Ted Barnett. I'm not sure. Maybe Barnett was catchier. But uh, he is in a lot of personnel listings as Ted Barnett. My father was Theodore Burnett II, and he played a lot of music. He never recorded he was like a lot of people in these different communities uh, that they'd known but never left the community or might not have ever recorded. And uh, he was basically centered around um, the activity of the 70s and uh, what was known as the lofts. Uh, uh, he played in them sometime, but frequented, frequented them. I remember as a child... Uh, sometimes he would be taking me different places where musicians were playing. Um, I remember being in Studio Rivby, Studio Wee, and of course there was the cultural center called the East in Brooklyn, which I have a lot of fond memories of. And I was just a child, you know, I was just running around with the other children. But at the East in particular, I, I remember some very cutting-edge music being played right in there in the community for regular folk. So later on in the early 80s, when certain viewpoints started de- developing that said that uh, black people and working-class people could not understand so-called free music, I knew personally that wasn't true just based on my experience. I mean, I was only a child. You know, I wish I was older. Because now that I actually play music, you know, I could have been more involved or asked these musicians some questions <laughs> and stuff. But I'm grateful anyway and uh, about that. My father passed last year at 65 on the 14th of March, 2014, at 4 p.m. in the morning, ironically, in Brookdale Hospital, the same hospital I was born at. But, um, you know, a certain generation, I think, uh, later generations probably got more health conscious as far as diet and uh, cigarettes and stuff like that. So, um, you know, but, um, and uh, myself, I started seeing live music on my own probably coming into young adulthood probably in the early, early part of the 80s when I was around 13 or 14. I would be listening to WKCR all the time, so there would be announcements about different things that was happening downtown in Manhattan, you know. And um, I would just get on the train by myself and come and check people out, you know, people like William Parker, Don Sherry. Uh, David Ware. And did you know uh, who to see because you'd been going around with your dad, or were you just 
taking a chance on people? Or? Well, I was always um, uh, a maniacal record collector, too, ever since I can remember. So I knew what was happening just from the records and from tuning into WKCR. A lot of people would be on the air giving interviews, and I and I learned that way from listening to them talk and uh, announcing where they would be playing or different broadcasters announcing uh, gigs and performances that would be happening. And uh, I just kept up, you know, um, with what was happening out there. I started um, hanging around in downtown Manhattan, even though I was still living in Brooklyn. I didn't necessarily come downtown to learn anything culturally or to be led in a certain way. I, I really came down there because a lot of record stores are there <laughs> in certain <laughs> venues, and uh, there were uh, musicians living in the area. And I would run into them on the street all the time, people like William Parker, Jameel Moondock, Daniel Carter, Roy Campbell. Uh, I met Beaver Harris before he passed, Frank Lowe. And uh, the whole spectrum, George Coleman, I met Barry Harris, Charles Davis, great piano player Richard Wyans. Mm -hmm. I was always a jazz lover across the board, even though it was always my, I guess, my honestly, my personal inclination was to play so-called free music. But um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't view it as separate from the jazz continuum itself, so... Um, I never really had that um, that issue personally as far as uh, not knowing about so-called tradition. You didn't have to be tied to it, but I, I did feel that you had to. Uh, I could hear in the avant-garde music I was listening to that the people playing that music were coming out of that themselves, but uh, they, they used it for their own to say what they had to say. Uh, when did you first pick up a saxophone? I started playing when I was... Uh, I always had toy saxophones, even as a kid. I think there's a couple of some pictures of me with some toy saxophones around. But uh, I think I started playing alto when I was about 10 years old. My father would give me lessons uh, after school. And my grandfather, this is my paternal grandfather, he would write out scales and stuff. He first taught me, uh, you know, uh, E.G., uh, E.G., uh, D.F., you know, every good boy does fine. And <laughs> a lot of, uh, you know, just the uh, basic stuff. So my father played alto, bass clarinet, Soprano and the flute. He was an Erdolfi fanatic. 
Eric Dolphy, Arnett, John Coltrane. But uh, a lot of reggae, too, you know, because I grew up with both because of my family. So uh, I always enjoyed that, too, more like the original roots, cultural roots reggae, in a way. But uh, I started playing when I was 10, and I played in the school band from about the fifth grade throughout high school. And uh, at that point, I was playing a lot of uh, party music, music for parties and uh, different reggae groups. You know, uh, I was listening to a lot of heavy jazz on my own. But I think my own direction started to crystallize later on as far as what I wanted to do, really. And how did that happen? How did you start playing free music and finding people to play with? Uh, I was always... uh, Well, you know, the music like the music I was listening to in the houses of that nature, and I just decided to uh, one day that I'm going to try and... uh, project my voice out there you know I jumped out there I guess like a lot of people do when they were still learning a lot of stuff even though um, I was at a point where I was able to carry my own weight anywhere in spite of what I still needed to do um, I was sincere and I, and I wasn't trying to jive to people or anything I was very serious about what I was doing so uh, it wasn't a phony thing or anything like that. You know, I just had the passion to uh, to express myself. It had a very urgent message to play. But, you know, thankfully, I always stayed on the case as far as practice and uh, woodshedding. And uh, thankfully, I am grateful for the uh, progress I've been making as a musician and, and uh, writing more music. And, and and playing. Plus, you know, I'm still from that time period where, where the elders got on your case about stuff, and that always helped. So, you know, I wasn't around people that let me slide and stuff like that. And they, and they loved the avant-garde themselves, but they said, look, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that. So, you know, I didn't have any, any uh, illusions about things like that. I always knew that there was a a connective thread running through the different stages of jazz's evolution, even if one has an avant-garde inclination. I think that black musicians or American musicians in general of any color with avant-garde inclinations don't have this inclination via a cultural disconnect, even if what they're playing is very different or very intense. I don't think it's really a question about that, you know. I mean, it, there's been criticisms that have been directed at people who play a certain way, but you know that doesn't mean that it that it's true. Did you, when you were starting to play free music, did you have access to to jam sessions or to to elders you could play with or to other peers who were trying to figure it out too? How did you start kind of actually playing and finding places to play? I just started looking for places to play myself. I went to some jam sessions. There was uh, some things happening in Brooklyn that weren't that well known like now because there's been like a resurgence of Brooklyn now musically. Now, a lot of the things I do in Brooklyn is in the reverse. Before, I always had to come to Manhattan. For some for some artistic activity. Of course, there was always art in the community. It never really stopped at all. When I was a kid, it was at a certain peak. But coming into young adulthood, uh, there was a resurgence of interest in jazz, but um, the more traditional kind. And the uh, hip-hop and rap had taken the hold, taken the hold of... Uh, a lot of young minds in the community. Uh, and that's okay because when it first started, it was positive and it was just another form of poetry, an extension of what was happening in the black arts movement. But the uh, the jazz dimension was uh, getting marginalized. So 
when I was coming of age into young adulthood, it was like a dialectic. On the one hand, the music was making a comeback, and uh, so-called free jazz was not new. I think there was always new things to do with it. But at the same time, there was a reactionary thing happening, um, which discourages a lot of young people from probably being themselves in the music just from that desire to unfortunately be easy or easily led or very uh, susceptible to uh, uh, to Svengali type figures, you know, which is similar to the religious dynamic where people tell you what to do and you don't question things, you know. any do you have any explanation for why the resurgence is happening now in Brooklyn uh, I think some of the younger people that are starting to move to Brooklyn probably have a more positive intent probably have a more artistic inclination um, that that's probably uh, the good aspect of things is that uh they're creating venues uh, for creative music for the creative arts. Uh, and I guess the other side of the spectrum for some is that there is some uh, displacement of people out of the community, which is not good, you know, because there, there's space for everybody. So the whole concept of uh, uh, historical landmarks being closed, people being displaced to high rent, uh, this whole war on public schools and uh, this game playing going on with, you know, the children's minds, uh, that's the bad part. But the good part is that there are, there's a lot of people that are trying to make something artistic happen in there. And uh, I appreciate that part, uh, that I've been able to play in a... In a, in a uh, in the town that I'm from, you know, and that's always welcome. You mentioned earlier listening to and playing uh, reggae coming up, and that is that that's because your family at one point converted to Rastafarianism. Is that right? Well, I did myself. Okay. Um, uh, you know, technically, my name is Theodore Burnett the Third. Uh, so my father's name was Theodore and my grandfather, but um, uh, we actually uh, embraced uh, uh, the Hebrew faith when I was younger. We were black Jews, you know, and that's how I grew up, and that's how I got the name Moshe or Moshe. It doesn't matter how the E is pronounced. It's okay. But uh, uh, my father gave me the name Moshe when I was... Uh, I forgot specifically how old I was, but most of my family still calls me Teddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and people, you know, who, uh, and then I use that name just uh, sometimes playing outside. And then I just started using Moshe. You know, I added the Ross on my own when I started getting involved with Rastafarianism, you know. Well, let me take off the ism. It's not an ism, but I'll just say Rastafari because it's not an ism. Sure. But, uh, you know, Ross is used as a prefix. Uh, in front of people's names. Um, and the name Ross also means child of the sun, which is uh, really my preferred way of using it because it also means king or head. But uh, I, don't, I don't need to be a king because sometimes the kings are bad news, you know. So I'm with the people, so... <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have a more... Uh, uh, expanded uh, use of of the, of the name Ross in that regard. It wasn't along the lines of any kind of elitism, but it was part of the Rasta continuum. And, uh, and you know, one way it's healthy to, to uh, especially if you're black, to think a certain way about yourself, because when you are young and black in the society, you get uh, hostility projected at you from people. Uh, not just one color or anything like that. So uh, being culturally and politically grounded is a way to keep yourself uh, strong in the face of that, you know, because uh, that's the thing is projecting hostility at young black people. I got a lot of that. I especially got some of that on the, uh, the jazz scene because I don't think a lot of people were used at the time period I was coming of age, I don't think people were used to uh, people, young black kids my age being that interested in Albert Island and Archie Shepard and stuff like that. They were trying to really phase that kind of music out in the community. I want to stay on this idea of, of naming for a minute because, uh, like you, although for different reasons, I also changed my name. Um, I did it when I was 21, and cool. at the when I did it and kind of created this new person, which is the name everybody knows me by now. To cool. me, it was a very, it was a very powerful thing because I felt like, cool. um, I felt like I was able to from that from that moment on say, okay, now now what happens in my life is on me. Now this this person Jason Crane that I have that I have manufactured is certainly informed by what has happened and by my family and by the place where I grew up but I felt like it was my chance to say okay all of that is true but from here on out I am going to create whatever is attached to this this set of sounds Jason Crane I'm going to I'm going to make what that guy is and I wonder nice if you name. Well, thank you. <laughs> I wonder if you had any similar experiences when you started using uh, when you started using a different name. If if it gave you a chance to, I don't know if, if you needed to reinvent yourself, but if it gave you a chance to think differently about who you were or who you wanted to be. Yeah, you know, um, I realized that kind of uh, you know later on. You're always learning more and more about the process of reinvention artistically culturally, artistically, uh, just reinvention like that. Uh, and then, you know, I thought about that later, you know, with names like Sun Ra, Duke Ellington, Count Basie. Um, I believe even the, the tenor player, who I think his name was, uh, he became Keshavon Maslach, but uh, he's really from Detroit, but everybody thought he was a European musician, but he was just <laughs> you know, following uh, that cultural tradition of, re of renaming yourself and having some sort of uh, tie to a cultural dynamic in your life as far as uh, who you are, where you're from, which really everyone has a right to do. I mean, that's that's outside of the, uh, the dynamic of the reactionary kind of nationalism, but I think everyone has a right to uh, to be themselves or uh, culturally go inside themselves and, and draw from that, you know. Um, 
you know, as long as it's not along the lines of any kind of uh, separatism or anything like that, or uh, one group of people being more chosen than the other, you know, because people are people. But, uh, you know, uh, parallel to that, I think being black in this society has its own dynamic at the same time. And uh, being Rasta and uh, 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 putting the prefix Rasta in front of my name, even before uh, you could articulate why, it did have a positive effect as far as a certain kind of dignity in the face of a certain kind of uh, treatment, just being um, young and black in this society and, and, and on a, a quest for information a quest for information and knowledge like everyone else, you know, especially with the music. You know. Will you talk about what's happening with you these days musically? Oh, well, thankfully, I have been playing a lot, and I'm very grateful about that. For about um, maybe seven or eight years now, I have been a proud member of uh, Bill Cole's Untempered Ensemble. And uh, they were a band I always liked listening to, even before I knew I'd be part of it. And uh, I already knew about Bill Cole from the books that he wrote on Miles Davis, and specifically the one on John Coltrane, which is uh, a great book. I agree. You know, because uh, he uses the uh, the words of a teacher comrade of his called Fela Sawande from Africa. But he prefaces each chapter with words from Fela Sawande. But it ties in with the music, even though he might not have been talking about jazz per se. It sort of taps in to the essence of what John Coltrane was doing and talking about. And uh, the one record that uh, uh, Bill Cole put out with Warren Smith and Sam Rivers I always had for a while with his appearances on Jane Cortez's records, so... And uh, being in that band with people like Warren Smith and Joe Daly, um, you know, it's just helped me so much musically. My playing has grown, you know, um, uh, in every way. You know, just, uh, you know, you get real lessons in dynamics and, and projection and uh, how to craft things and to be diverse even within the freedom without compromising the freedom or compromising your voice, because I'm not going to do that. But, uh, you know, it has been a uh, um, a great, it's, it is a great experience and, and a great apprenticeship for me, something I really appreciate. Uh, I recently did some great gigs with William Hooker, the drummer as well, doing a series of... Um, projects playing music behind the films of Oscar Michaud, who was uh, the early 
maker of silent films from the turn of the century. And they're very good, well-done films, too, you know. So uh, we've been doing some gigs uh, uh, using that conceptual idea. Uh, and um, there's also a very good trio I'm in with uh, the guitarist Don Manassi and Nora McCarthy, the vocalist, called uh, Manna for Thought. And uh, we get together and rehearse, and we have some gigs every now and then and everything. And you played on Dom's album, Vampire's Revenge, too, right? Vampire's Revenge, yeah. That was a lot of fun. That was a uh, a big band thing recorded in Brooklyn at Systems, too. And, um, you know, and I've been out uh, doing things... Um, with my own groups, there's just a a pool of players that I've been playing with for a while that I just play with in different combinations on each gig. And um, I find that's a good thing because, you know, you develop a rapport and a language, even though each trip is different, of course. But, um, you know, I, I think that's important to, uh, uh, to develop a language with a core group of people. But um, even outside of that, I've been playing a lot with people. And uh, in this past September, I was very honored to do a recording uh, under the leadership of the drummer Bobby Cap, who you might have heard of. Sure. From the 1960s. Uh, he's on uh, Dave Burrell's record called High on Douglas that got released as High 1, High 2 later on. Uh, know how to Justin Hall, Gatto Barbieri's first record on ESP. And that was an honor for me because I always enjoyed the record that Bobby Cap was on. Uh, so uh, he put together me, Matthew Ship on piano. And that was a lot of fun too. And uh, Tyler Mitchell on bass. And was this kind yeah. of a, was this a reemergence for Bobby Cap or has he been playing all this time? He's been playing, I don't think playing in the city that much. He did play with Noah Howard at the old knitting factory maybe about 10 some odd years ago. Um, and I think he played at Sarone's Memorial at St. Peter's, if I remember correctly. Okay. I, think I spoke with him a little bit then, but... Um, this CD is called Themes for Transmutation. And uh, it, we recorded it in September, and it came out not long after that. So, um, and I think that's been getting some good exposure. And uh, I've been doing things with William Parker lately, which I'm very appreciative about. Some trio stuff with him, myself, and Warren Smith on drums. And you have a and, gig coming up on the 22nd, right? Yes, I do. Tell um, us about the, that. Uh, well, this is April to Wednesday, April 22nd at 9 p.m. And this is part of a month-long series under the uh, Evolving Music Series, which is part of also Arts for Art, um, organized initially by uh, Patricia Nicholson Parker and I think William Parker, involved too and uh, Arts for Art was already doing a, 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 a weekly series on Mondays at the Clemente Soto Velez Center downtown on uh, Suffolk and Delancey Street but this is a month long thing and there's been some great performances uh, and I'm performing on the 22nd which incidentally is Earth Day uh, with Bill Cole on double reads, Larry Rowland on bass, and he's going to read his poetry too, and um, Lisette Santiago on percussion, specifically conga drums, the bata drums, and I think she's going to play some theremin too. And uh, preceding us that night is the poet Amina Baraka, the widow of Mary Baraka, but she's more than that. She's a poet, artist, organizer in her own right. 
so it's Amina Baraka with William Parker on bass and uh, Patricia Nicholson, Nicholson Parker on dance. And um, that's going to be a good night uh, in general. Uh, I think artsforarts.org. And if memory serves, I've, I've only met you one time, and it was for a few seconds, and I believe that that was at an Arts for Art show. Um, I think maybe that Faye Victor was playing. Right. I can't... Did we meet at 55 Bar, too? Oh, we did, actually. That's right. That's right. Right. Two times. Right, right. And your right. memory's yeah, better yeah. than mine. Yeah, we were talking. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice conversation. Yeah, it was. talk about what it's like living a life as a musician and uh, you know putting on shows uh, trying to create spaces for people to play music what what does that look like these days that's still happening there's always uh, even though a lot of places are closing there's always new places being found uh, even if they sometimes don't last that long the point is to keep moving on with, with the idea and um, I was always inspired by that kind of activity. Uh, always, I grew up talking to and listening to people who played in the lofts in the 70s and organized shows. And I always saw that as parallel with the you know, political organization, the political activity that was going on, just doing things yourself and putting out the message yourself. The things that Amiri Baraka was doing in the 60s with Black Arts Theater and uh, other people that were organizing along those kinds of lines. I was always inspired by that kind of activity. And uh, I started doing things at the Breck Forum in New York. Uh, I was already coming to the Breck Forum. Uh, for different things, and I had read poetry there a couple of times, and um, just helped with some uh, political work. But around '99 or 2000, I think I was invited to be part of the, uh, the group inside the Breck Forum called Noise Cabaret, and. Um, that was already in existence for like a year, and I saw a couple of their performances. This is when the Brecht was still on 27th Street, uh, between 6th and 7th Avenue. And I was glad to join. Uh, my good friend Barbara Birch recruited me, and uh, it was already her, Urania Mylonis, Kurt Galchalk, a writer, was still around, and... Uh, he didn't. Uh, he ended up leaving because uh, I guess he got so busy with uh, um, school and just other stuff. Uh, not long after, 
But it was already uh, core people that were putting on shows over there once a month. And then I got involved. And uh, we just kept it going. Um, you know, uh, there was a performance once a month. And uh, the artists would get uh, 80% of the door and 20% went to the space. Then eventually there was a little funding. Uh, and then we were able to at least give a little guarantee to the people who played. And uh, we would do things once a month. A lot of different people passed through. And then I started doing my own series in conjunction with that called Music Now. And maybe that's been going on for maybe 13, 14 years now. And uh, that was just to facilitate more artists being able to play. And just to keep it going, along with Noise Cabaret, just because, uh, you know, you have to do that sometime. And uh, that was already my inclination, you know, because I was always inspired by you know, the organizational activity that was going on. Uh, like I just said, and um, so uh, I would do things uh, once a week. I mean, sorry, once a month sometimes twice a month and uh, just have um, different artists um, come and play. And I usually played myself. I usually opened um, uh, my different groups, the different editions of the Music Now unit uh, opened up for uh, some great people who passed through and played on the, on the series. And, um, I'm very proud of that, and uh, you know it was it was very fruitful, and it was also like a, a workshop situation for my different ideas and the different people that I was playing with to develop the music and play in the different combinations with the people that I like to play with, you know. And it's you know I think uh, that's always been parallel with playing the music itself the um organizing shows and finding places to play. Um that goes back to the uh to the Bebop era in a way too, um, as quiet as it's kept, you know, the the musicians had these concerns about uh independence and uh, actually having a a larger uh take and larger say and what was happening with artists and creation of the music. And, uh, I really believe in that myself. Yeah, it seems like these days every musician is also a small business person. And, uh, yeah. and in the bebop era, I mean, just this is all based on reading, obviously. I'm, I'm 41, so I wasn't there. But it seems like uh, there was also a concern about not getting ripped off. You know, having, having artists-created... Yeah. Artists venues and shows so that they were sure they would actually get paid properly rather than, you know, cheated as yeah. often the case. Well, that too, especially that generation, because, uh, you know, the things and people they had to deal with at that time was even more intense than it is now. And, uh, it's still intense, but, um, I think it's a good thing to not be complacent and to uh, and to organize even even as a musician, you know. Well, man, kudos to you for uh, for everything you've done and continue to do. Uh, my guest is Ross Moshe. It's it's just been such a pleasure talking to you. I'm I'm glad I'm glad we finally did it. I feel like it's years overdue, but I do hope you'll come back on the show again and uh, and we can talk more. Oh, I'd, I'd be, I'd be glad to. I'd be glad to. I'd be glad to. You know, I, I enjoy your shows. I appreciate what you're doing. It's much needed. The music needs it, and uh, thanks for involving me with it.
That's music from saxophonist Ross Moshe. Thanks so much to Ross for being on the show. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this program. They've got not one, but two new recordings out. One by the Sextet, one by the Respect Trio. You heard about that at the top of the show. Please go to respectsextet.com and buy all their music. Thanks also to Dave Rabel for the logo. If you're on Facebook, you can find the show at facebook.com slash thejazzsession. Check out my stand-up comedy at firstlaughs.com, my poetry and essays at jasoncrane.org, my PR work for artists at cranewrites.com, follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, then get the hell offline and go support some live music. I will talk to you next week. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.